You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. I had a client say to me, when I come to Phoenix, uh, I want to see your wheelbarrow. I said, uh-huh. And he said, I want to see the wheelbarrow you use to wheel your balls around in. And um, this is right after we had a fee discussion. And um, um, well, it sparked a whole book title kind of thing. I um, uh, because if you really want to boil down um, what separates successful people from unsuccessful people, uh, it is, uh, I think, uh, brass balls. Um, and I don't mean in the physical sense, obviously. I mean in the you know, because women have these too. Um, uh, I really do think it is the distinctive issue. You, you know, a whole lot of people just don't have um, whatever term you wish to use other than this. Um, the cojones, the the guts, the whatever to ask the marketplace. Uh, for precisely what they want and to a great degree um, the marketplace takes you at your own appraisal and, uh, and and I think it is increasingly so uh, where the marketplace doesn't make decisions necessarily anymore on how long you've been in business or whether grandpa founded the company or uh, what degrees you have um, I noticed, um, uh, how many of you have Paul Hartunian's course or get his newsletter about PR and publicity? Not many of you. Uh, uh, those of you who don't probably should and those of you who do, I noticed uh, in some of his most recent stuff, uh, talking about how to do news releases and communicate with the media, he's advising people not even to bother mentioning their academic qualifications uh, unless you have to have them to do what you do. like if, you're a heart surgeon, then you might want to mention that you got a degree. But in in other applications, the media no longer cares about that stuff. Uh, it's not even important. Uh, so credentials, you know, don't uh, don't matter that much. Um, but I think a lot of people are still functioning with the belief that the marketplace makes its decisions based on a lot of factors like that when in reality the marketplace makes its decision sort of in a vacuum with you one-on-one -on -one based on what you say about yourself and what you ask for uh, and so uh, the ability to you know I often tell people in my business in my business uh, about a third of my uh, I guess about a third of my activity is um, um, copywriting and um, and I often tell people, I, I think there's maybe, I don't know, 20, 25, 50. There can't be more than 100 um, pro direct response copywriters in the country who are consistently in the, in the fee and royalty compensation level um, that guys like I and Halbert and Ben Zavinga are. And so often uh, that means that to do, say, a direct mail campaign or to do an ad, um, I'm sitting across the desk from somebody and quoting them fees of $25,000, $35,000, dollars $45,000 plus a royalty uh, tied to results. And I often tell people that the first qualification in order to be able to do that has absolutely nothing to do with copywriting skill. It has to do with being able to keep a straight face when you quote the fee. 
and you, you, you've got to sit in front of a mirror and practice that. Uh, because, well, if you stop to think about it, I mean, 25 grand to write three letters is like outrageous. You know, I mean, well, think of the comparison. Uh, how many in here have had a book published by a real publisher? Not self-published, but, you know, Simon Schuster, Random House, whatever. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, Steve, Howard, you guys certainly know, uh, like, what advance... To get a $25,000 advance out of a publisher to do a book, I mean, you almost have to agree to have their baby at the same time you do the book. And particularly if it's your first book. And... And maybe with royalties on a business book, uh, not you know about not like conversations with God or, or or chicken soup for the paraplegic inmate soul, but but a real um, um, that's the one I'm going to you know everybody gets to co-author one of those books by the time in my lifetime this is the old Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame in our lifetime we will see every person on the planet who can write will have co-authored a chicken soup for somebody's sole book this is everybody's going to get their chance so uh but a business book may be like an ultimate sales letter book in its lifetime on the shelf that book was written in 1991 so it's been on the shelf for eight years in royalties that book has made me laugh now, it takes a lot of work, it takes a whole lot more work to do a book than it does to do three letters. So there's your frame of reference, you know. And, and so it really does, you have to sort of work at keeping a straight face when you quote that fee. And, um, and it takes brass to, to, to ask for that kind of money. But there's a corollary in every business. Um, in chiropractic, now you, you're, a chiro, you're retired, right? But you're a chiropractor. Your son, is your son in practice? No. Anybody else in here a chiro, by the way? Anybody? One? Okay. In, in, chiro, two, in, in, in chiropractic, in the practice management days, we taught pre... How many in here have been to a chiro, chiropractor? Raise your hands. Okay, good, wonderful. Um, then some of you will have seen good report of findings and some of you will have seen bad report of findings and a few of you probably got no report of findings but the report of findings in chiropractic is the sales presentation in case you didn't know that's what it is that's the sales presentation and, the re uh, and a good report of findings um, is problem agitate solve for those of you who understand formulas and a good report of findings its first job is to scare you to death uh, you must believe at the end of the report of findings that if you don't do certain things, your spine is going to fall out of your body the next time you get out of the car. Uh, that's why they show it to you so you can recognize it when it comes out. And, um, um, and then it's the sales presentation. Well, we taught for years, we taught what's called prepay uh, in chiropractic, which means that um, they, after the problem and they agitate the solution, they figure up your whole case. Uh, kind of like a marketing consultant would quote a budget for a program, they say to you, you're going to have to come 14 times a week for the first three weeks and six times a week for the next 18 weeks and four times a week for the next, and four times a month we're going to have to hang you upside down and, it's a, and that all adds up to X. And uh, this is in early 1980s. Um, the doctors who were in our program, the average prepay case was uh, $7,000. And we had to teach these chiropractors how to look a patient in the face and ask them for $7,000. And, 
And the same principle, I mean, all kidding aside, we had to put them on video camera and put them in front of a mirror and make them practice this because otherwise their entire face and body language would give them away. You know, when it came time to ask for the $7,000, the doctor would suddenly look like, you know, an epileptic, terrorized... Um, and, and you know, because to them that was what you know they're charging like thirty bucks a visit, and now they're and, and of course all the mental stuff. Nobody's got to. Nobody will write a check for. So nobody will put seven thousand dollars on their credit card. Nobody's gonna, you know. And so they have all that in their head. Uh, and so this whole issue of asking for what you want. Uh, those who did it and followed the presentation enormously successful and there's the, although it's not popular in the profession today there are there are still probably 10% of the chiropractors where prepay is a significant percentage of their uh, practice and uh, just as an aside um, the patients who prepay uh, generally have a much higher rate of success in terms of getting well than do the pay-as-you-go patients um, so there's a patient benefit to all this. Compliance goes up dramatically when they have given you $7,000 as opposed to when they are giving you $30 whenever the hell they bumble into the office. So there's a, there's a, there's a win-win in all of this. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the first brass ball factor uh, is uh, set your price. Um, I did a radio interview two, more, two mornings ago, I guess. Um, I forget now, and 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 I got suckered, um, which is a whole other point we'll talk about in a second. But anyway, I'm on this radio show, and um, Howard, you do a lot of radio, so you know this is an early morning show in New York. It's probably some obscure. I suspect it's an obscure station. So you know there were four people on the panel being interviewed, and I, my guess would be eight people listening. Uh, it, it would have been as efficient to just call each one of them and talk to them. But, but anyway, I'm on the. I, I do it mostly because the publish it excites the book publisher. They think something's happening. You know, the book book publishers love having their authors do radio interviews. If you when you have a book published, believe me, even if it's a book, you know, a business book, it could be, it could be a book, a technical book, like a book for surgeons on how to do bypass operations. They'll still want you to do radio interviews. This is what the publishing industry understands, and they get excited by all this. Um, if you analyze it, it's the most convoluted. You know, you're going to get on a radio show, and maybe 300 are going to listen, and then they got to go to a bookstore. It's a convoluted way to sell books. But anyway, I'm on this radio show with these three other marketing experts, and uh, to the host horror. Um, because she's doing this nice, polite, go around the invisible round table, and each person answers the same question. You know. And I, it's, I visualized her sitting there with a little china teapot and a cup of tea, and she's very politely, well, to her horror, I disagreed with all the other three guys, and we got an argument. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things that we instantly got into an argument about was the, the discussion was supposed to be about how to do a business plan and how to do a marketing plan. And the advice from the other guys about setting price was, uh, you know, the first thing you have to do is you got to figure out what everybody else is charging for. You know, so you're in a hardware store, you got to go find out what all the other hardware stores in your area are doing. And if you're a printer, you got to go find what all the other printers are doing. And, and, and they didn't qualify the advice. Uh, and 
it's not in and of itself bad advice and for some businesses it's even good advice but it's also dangerous advice because it has an intrinsic mindset in it and the intrinsic mindset is I gotta find out what everybody else charges for what I do and then my choices are pick the middle that's what most people will do pick the middle or some will say go in under the market and pick the lowest number and that's the intrinsic mindset which the summary of that is is my price must be controlled by what my competitors prices are and that's a very dangerous mindset uh, because it's complete horseshit uh, the, the truth of the matter is you can charge any darn thing you want uh, and, and get it there is a market somewhere for every price point and in almost every business you can justify any price you wish to charge and you'll find in any market particularly service type businesses not product on a shelf commodity to commodity but in service type businesses uh, you will find uh, take a dentist take a chiropractor take a carpet cleaner take a pest control person take a marketing consultant name the profession you wish and go into a market and I guarantee you you will find people with very low prices you will find people with very high prices you will find people with prices in the middle in many cases you will find the people with the high prices are prospering more than the people are with the low prices uh, in the restaurant industry um, some years ago I had a client uh, it, it, he was already into a different business but he was one of the co-founders of the steak and ale restaurant chain and uh, he they started steak and ale uh, during a recession and their positioning was to come in low to be able to provide a steakhouse environment and a steakhouse dinner for a relatively low price and what he said to me he had already sold his interest in the business and moved on to something else and what he said to me was the strategy was perfect for the time that we implemented it but as a long-term strategy it's a lousy strategy for the restaurant business because often it's a lousy strategy for every business because somebody will go lower so what you really want to be if you're in the restaurant business is you want to be the highest priced guy in your city with the highest margins in your city because there's always a market for the top end recession or no recession and he said in retrospect we took the easy way in and yeah we made a lot of money and I got out at the right time but if I wanted to stay in the restaurant industry for my entire life that's not the strategy I would employ um, I, I think the way you set your price um, is you may want to do competitive research you may want to consider all sorts of other factors but the primary factor ought to be how much money do you want <laughs> that ought to be the primary factor you should set your price based on what you want and 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 when you are selling time in whole or part then you really got to give this a lot of thought is how much do you want for the time you are going to invest in this thing whether it's hour for hour counseling somebody or whether it's building a product you're then going to sell whatever and you should not be afraid to set high prices uh, I first started to be concerned about my pricing early in my career when a few times in a row people expressed surprise at how low it was if you want them in shock they ought to be in shock about how high it is not about how low it is <laughs> uh, uh, and there's a there's there's a saying at the racetrack you've never bet enough money on a winning horse you know after the race I say it and everybody says it you turn to the people you're sitting with at the table and say should have bet more 
uh, easy decision to make after the race, of course. But the corollary to that in business is the sinking feeling you have after you quoted a fee, had it immediately accepted. And you say to yourself, <clears throat> whoa. And if it happens repetitively, see if there, I've salespeople tell me all the time that they want to get to the point, and doctors tell us this all the time, they want, they want to sell in a, we wrote a book about it because people want this, in a zero resistance environment. Well, let me tell you something. If you're selling in a true zero resistance environment, your prices are too low. If you're not getting any price or fee resistance at all, you're leaving money on the table. So that's not what you want. People think that's what they want. I want to sell in a zero-resistance environment. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> you want to sell in an almost zero-resistance environment, but if you don't sense some about your prices, <coughs> this, uh, if you haven't read Stuart Wilde, by the way, get a couple of Stuart Wilde books and read them. Uh, now, Stuart's sort of out there on the metaphysical side of things, so a lot of what he says some of you will find troubling. I certainly don't, I mean, like Stuart believes you can split yourself in half and teleport half your body around the country. So you just, Stuart also drinks a lot. But, um, but a lot of what he says about money is right on. And this principle, when they show up bill them, is uh, fundamentally this means stop, stop doing anything for free unless you're doing it for very specific strategy. Uh, let me explain the difference. A lot of people give away stuff at random on an ongoing basis, mostly their time. And so you, you will give away advice or um, chiropractor will adjust somebody who comes over for dinner in their living room on the coffee table. Um, um, on, the giving away stuff at random, letting your time and your value be abused, is the equivalent of letting your time and value being abused by people. And the less of it you do, uh, the better off you'll be. I started in the advertising agency business. And in the ad agency business, the norm still is, I guess, and was um, free pitch meetings. And so a client company would announce that they are going to consider a new agency. And every agency in town gets an appointment and they all trot in with flip charts and today I assume laser power print presentation things and so forth and they all do dog and pony shows. And they all do an immense amount of work ahead of time and they prepare like mock campaigns and all, and they do all this for nothing. And smart companies, a lot of big companies do this routinely and they get away with it over and over and over and over and over again. It astounds me. Three or four times a year they announce this. And they invite all the agencies in and all the big agencies. They have no intention of changing ad agencies. But they get two days of free ideas. And they all sit there and look at what everybody does for free. And then they say, nah, we decided to stay with the guys we're already with. But to them, they say, here's five or six really good ideas we should be doing. And we just got them all for nothing. Now, if you're on their side of the table, that's pretty damn smart. Do it. <laughs> uh, but if you're on the other side of the table, participating in that, is not very smart at all. Um, and so very quickly, early in the ad agency business, I stopped doing it. And uh, I said, no, we don't, that's not how we do things. The way we do things is you give us money. <laughs> then we prepare 
a bunch of ideas, and then if you use any of them, you give us more money, but the money you gave us is discounted from the money you're going to give us. Formula I still use today. Um, I stopped doing uh, anything for free. Um, my motto is there ain't no free lunch, especially with me. <laughs> uh, uh, it's 800 bucks an hour plus you pay the tan. And, um, uh, you know, there's, when you know stuff, a bunch of you are guilty about this, when you know stuff, there's an enormous temptation to want to tell people. You know? Because, you, yeah, you feel kind of good, right? But it doesn't do you any good, and it really doesn't do them any good, because they don't do anything with what you tell, anything they get for free they don't use. So, what's the point? So, Stuart's advice is when they show up, though, uh, which you should charge for everything beginning with square one, the very first thing you do, unless there's a specific strategy for the free. I'll give you an example. A specific strategy for free is, is launching a business from scratch quick by buying the customers. Uh, works in retail, works in the restaurant business, for example. Uh, Murray Raffel tells a wonderful story about how he created his whole customer base for his deli in a month and then never had to advertise ever, ever, ever again. And essentially all he did is to everybody who worked within a reasonable circumference of the deli, they gave them free lunches. Not two furs, not no stuff, just free. They fed everybody for free. And, uh, and that's it. And now there's enough of them that keep coming back, assuming that the food's good and the service is good and all of that. And that's cheaper than building the business slow over a year, two years, three years, and spending a whole lot of money on advertising. It's cheaper just to buy the customers in the first place in one big lump. Now, that's a legitimate strategy for doing free. But when you do free kind of on an ongoing, random basis, it's a bad idea, and I suggest you eliminate it. Third. <laughs> dictate, don't negotiate. Uh, do business on your terms. Now, here, here's the question I often get asked. Easy to do that now. What did you do when? And I'm often offended by speakers who get up and tell you what they're doing now, but they don't tell you what they did when they built their businesses. Um, I started doing this when, they were, when I was broke. Um, uh, my, my premise from day one was um, I tell the customer the rules. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is I believe people want to be told the rules. It, it, Kevin Robert used to say that, um, that uh, most people are uh, walking around with their umbilical cord in their hand looking for a new place to plug it in. <laughs> There's, a, there's an enormous amount of truth to that, but, but the less severe corollary, uh, early in my work in chiropractic, I, heard a, I, I got to know a guy, and he's a speaker to chiropractors, his name is Kirby Landis, I don't know, if, I don't know, if, I don't know what Kirby's doing now, but uh, Kirby was in practice management, and Kirby had a term he used that he taught the doctors, which I've borrowed, and he said that most patients come to their a chiropractor, and I believe this is, you can substitute anything you want where the word chiropractor is, looking for the stern but loving parent. 
And I, th I do. I think that's what most people are looking for. And so they want somebody to tell them, here's the, here, here's the deal. Here's the way this works. And some of the terminology we use in chiropractic is this is going to be a partnership and here's what I'm going to do, but here's what you have to do. And so the same applies to dealing with clients and with customers. I don't care whether you're installing carpets in their home or training their bird or, or whatever it is that you're doing with the customer. What they're looking for is someone, an authority figure, to take charge. The other corollary to that is, is that people prefer doing business with successful people. This is why if you have a retail business, you don't want an empty parking lot. Um, if you have a restaurant, you don't want an empty parking lot. Because uh, it invites people to think twice and drive on by. Maybe you've done it. Going to a restaurant you've never tried before, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, start to drive in a parking lot, you're the only car. Say to yourself, uh-oh. And so those kind of businesses, we always teach them, including chiropractors and dentists, if, if the parking lot is obvious, make sure you park some cars out there. And if you're going to go weeks when your business is not taken off, make sure you get different cars and move them around. You know, you don't leave them in the same slot day after day after day. You know, go down to Hertz and rent some cars. Okay. Because okay? people want to see customers. You know? Uh, people prefer to deal with successful people. And, and generally speaking, the more successful you are, the more people want to deal with you. That's kind of logical, isn't it? You know? Let's say you've got to get heart surgery. Do you want to go to the guy who can fit you in right now? <laughs> no problem. Nurse, anesthetize him. Let's go. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. You would rather hear, well, let's see, book, 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 can fit you in. Right. Now, it takes blasts to do that when you really don't have a full schedule. You know? Max Maltz talks about his first plastic surgery patient sitting in the office waiting day after day after day after day, you know, for the phone call and the phone finally ringing and it's a patient, you know, and taking all of the will and courage uh, and discipline that he had to put the patient on hold while he checked the empty appointment book, you know, and ruffled a few pages to see when he could fit him in. Um, uh, I, start, I started years ago uh, when it didn't matter, but I, but I would never, ever, ever take an inbound call from a client prospect or call them back the same day. Now, when you ain't got any, that takes some real restraint. Guy just called, wants to talk to you about. In my case, it was either wants to book you to speak or wants to talk to you about a consulting engagement. And you got nothing on the books. Nothing. Guy could have, you have his choice. There's 364 open days. Not go work on Christmas. Other than that, take your pick, right? Take some real restraint not to take the call. Take more restraint not to, like, wait an hour and then call back. But it's better if you don't. Now, as a practical matter today, they wait a week because I can't. You know, they go on the, like Howard sent some stuff in here, I don't know, express mail or priority mail or whatever you did. 
a month ago. <laughs> and, you know, when I said how it is, the good news is that got you on the top of the pile I'm going to get to after the pile I'm going to get to. Uh, if you'd sent it by regular mail, you'd be on the third pile, you know. But, I mean, it's a reality today, but it began as a marketing strategy. The delay. Uh, people want to deal with successful people. And what successful people do is they dictate the terms of how you do business with them. They don't negotiate. They tell you. Yeah, you can respond to emergencies, and there are some businesses where it's, where it's predicate, but uh, my accountant has a sign in his office that, you know, says, your, your, your tardiness does not become our emergency. Um, and, and, and he's right, you know, and he gets a bigger one made around tax time every year because, of course, everybody goes to their accountant like on the 14th of April. And um, um, even responding to emergencies, um, we have some recent experience because of my father. When's the last time you went to an emergency room at a hospital? They got some real balls calling that thing an emergency room. It should be called a waiting room, right? Because that's what it is. I mean, 90% of the people who came there thinking they had emergencies, the first thing they discover is their definition of emergency don't match the hospital's definition of emergency. You've got to, like, have a spike sticking out of your body uh, and blood spurting up into the air before anybody is going to pay any immediate attention to you. Uh, and even then, they might hand you a bag of ice, roll you over in a corner, and say, you know, the doctor will be with you shortly. And again, they have a completely different definition of shortly. <laughs> shortly to them seems to mean the doctor's under five foot eight. It has nothing to do with time. They, it's a foreign concept to them. So what you don't want to do is let yourself be stampeded by other people's perceptions of how you should respond to them. You can train your customer and, and you start training with the prospect. And, and, and again, they'd really rather. See, the idea that you're going to do best in business by being instantly and massively accessible to everybody, which is an idea that has been taught of late in sales training, is totally wrong. I see these people now, they got six, you know, they're wired to their customers. They got eight beepers, they got the phone. They're on airplanes, sit down next to me on airplanes and plug themselves in. They're getting faxes, man, in the air. You know what, I laughed though, I was on the plane, the other guy, and you know, it costs, I don't know what it is, eight, nine, ten bucks a minute, you know, for an airplane call, and so that's what it costs you to get an inbound fax through the airphone system, and so he sets up all his crap and he's wired in and, and the thing starts and here comes this fax, right? Real, you know, real slow. And I'm sitting there thinking 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, this thing finally ticks out. It's three pages long and it's from about a four or five-year-old girl. It's the drawings from school she brought home today, which she is faxing to daddy. Maybe that's okay, maybe it's not, you know, but I mean, they got, these people are wired to, to their customers. They gotta have beepers, gotta have phones, can't let it go 10 seconds without responding to them. Bad thinking in almost any business because it's bad positioning. And positioning wins out over service most of the time. Fourth. I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. If I walked into a department store and somebody waited on me, I'd turn around and go somewhere else. Yeah, but let me tell you how I would handle it if I...
Well, let's assume though you walk into a menswear section of it. I assume, I don't want to know about your personal life. Let's assume it's the menswear section. <laughs> and, uh, or, 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 or you go to, again, uh, this is more than I need to know. Um, um, and the salesperson uh, handles that well, or even their assistant comes over to you and says, uh, uh, John uh, Roquefort, the, uh, the uh, men's uh, fashion consultant uh, here at Nordstrom's, uh, is busy with another customer right now. Uh, he'll be approximately 20 minutes. Uh, we'd love to have you be the next person he takes care of. You can have a seat here and look at some information, or you can browse around, and uh, can I get you a cup of coffee? Now, how are you? Now, if John's smart, even if he doesn't have another customer, he's in the back room drinking a cup of coffee while you're drinking a cup of coffee. Okay? Fire your problem clients or customers or patients. Plug in whatever word you want. Get rid of them. Okay? Uh, the, did I skip four? Well, too late now. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll tell you an interesting story. I, I used to do, I used to do five-day seminars. That was like the start of my speaking business. And one time before a seminar, a guy comes up to me, and I mean, he's an Indian guy, not, not, I mean, Indian like American Indian. And he's got the, he's got the buckskin deal with the beads. I mean, this is exactly. Right now, he owns a casino somewhere, but he's an Indian. And he's got moccasins, and I mean, the guy, a big hair, ponytail, Indian. And he comes up to me and he says, uh, you know, I have something interesting to tell you. Uh, our tribe has a belief that each, each human is born with a preset, predetermined, and everybody's is different, predetermined. <laughs> and, and when you use yours up, that's when you go. <laughs> Which is, a, they use it as an encouragement to people, you know, to only say important things and that. Well, I'm thinking about this for five days. I'm in the front, I, I'm in the front of the room talking, you know, and that's when I dropped to three-day seminars and then two days. <laughs> and now pretty much like an hour and a half and so, Skip four, skip eight, I don't care. You know, it, it, it'll just get us through it quicker if we miss a couple. Um, um, when, you, when you get rid of problem customers, clients, or patients, not only does the vacuum fill with better customers, clients, or patients, and if, it, if you're not confident that the vacuum will fill, then that immediately tells you you've got marketing problems. Because <laughs> if you've got good marketing, the vacuum will fill. And it, the same, you know, a, the management principle, 20% uh, of your people give you 80% of your trouble, the same thing's true with customers. Uh, a small percentage of your customers give you the vast majority of your grief. And you are infinitely better off surgically removing them as early as you detect that they are that person has possible. Now, every once in a while, yes, you will get rid of one that could have turned around. That if you had hung in there, and you, you, you will lose a good one every once in a while. But overall, this policy will save you a lot of grief and make you a lot of money. Yep.
I've heard you say this before. What happens if it's the same 20%? Do you still get rid of them and just pay the tax? Yeah. Yeah. You can't... See, the, the customer that sucks up an inordinate percentage of your time, money, energy, staff, uh, you can't afford them. And what people do is look at the gross, you know, well, gee, this account spends $100,000 a year with me. But if they're costing you 300 grand a year in time, energy, staff, etc., you're better off getting rid of the 100000 And you may temporarily wind up less gross, less gross, more margin, which is a whole other topic that, you know, we're going to talk about. But most people wind up, and sales managers make the same mistake with salespeople, they wind up now devoting an inordinate amount of time to the problem child. Now, if we were just this morning with uh, Jeff and I were having a conversation at the table about problem children. You know, the, the bad news about problem children is you can't fire them. Um, I mean, you can send them off to military school, but but you kind of you're stuck with them, you know. Um, and 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 now they're moving back in, so it's like you never maybe get rid of them. But a problem customer, you can tell, go away. You know, they have the great sign in the restaurant. You know, we we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. You too. <laughs> this is a great shock to customers, but you know, and you can try and do it in a way that doesn't leave them permanently pissed off. I mean, there's a way to kind of say it to them, but if you must leave them permanently PO'd, better that than having them permanently with you. Are you still... The same for employees? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, the, the employee corollary is really interesting. What happens when you, when you find the one uh, that is the real problem, when you, it's called the principle of sacrifice. Uh, when, when, you, when, you, when you fire that person, uh, first of all, all the other ones knew you should have done it before you did. And they give you credit now for a reasonable, they suddenly decide you're not as stupid as they thought you were for the last three months. And so temporarily the relationship with everybody else improves. Also, their productivity improves because they realize you will fire somebody. Um, and, and there are managers who have the philosophy that once every six months you got to fire somebody even if everybody's good. <laughs> because because that's what keeps everybody else on their toes. I don't know if I buy that, but I think I do. Uh, but the 80-20 rule, and maybe it's 90-10, maybe it's 85-15, you know. But it's there in everything. Well, it's the overlap there. I've heard you talk for five years. I've been thinking about 80% of your productivity comes to 20% of your people. 80% of your problems come from 20% of the people. You don't want it to be the same 20 No, you don't want it to be the same 20 My question is, uh, if it is... If it is, you still got to chuck them. Yeah, you still got to chuck them, and you got to try and figure out what caused that unusual situation to occur. Because it's an unusual situation. You've been listening to one of our gold members-only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a Diamond member and get access to the Diamond members-only podcast as well. On top of that, you will also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.